Our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 31. First Corinthians 10:31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We've been looking at the question or the issue the past few weeks. Why is it so hard to believe in today's world? And as I've said before, I've been immensely helped. Um, well, James uh, Charles Taylor's book on the secular age, but James K. Smith has written a smaller book help you manage it called How Not to Be Secular Reading Charles Taylor and you know if I write a paper I can footnote or put endnotes in the sermon it's a little more difficult to do that uh, Let me trust me when I tell you that I owe both of these men a great deal last Sunday we saw that we live in the modern world in the secular world there's a problem though and that is secular can be used in one of three ways Traditionally, in classical accounts, it refers to something that is temporal or something that is earthly, something that is mundane. So priests and the like had sacred vocations. Everybody else had secular jobs. The second way that it is used comes into the modern age in which it means something that is neutral. That is something that has no religious connotations whatsoever. So the public square is said to be secular because it is neutral. There is no one religious system that dominates the conversation. I think a lot of people, maybe many people in our time, would describe themselves as secular, which means they have no particular religious affiliation and they have no real religious beliefs. Um, They may say something like, I'm spiritual but not religious, and so they would ultimately be seen as secular. By the way, in this point of view, from this point of view, as societies become more modern, they become more secular, they become less religious. And this is the way that most people use that word. But the third way that it is used is it describes a society in which religious belief or belief in God is understood to be one option. It is an optional thing. And what we see is from let's say a thousand years ago to the present day, we have moved from a society in which belief in God is unchallenged, and in fact, you would be wise to believe in God, to a society in which, yeah, you can believe in God, but that's only seen as one of many options and and probably not the easiest one to embrace. Most people, when we say secular, are thinking about the second definition. The reality is we are living in the third, and I think that causes confusion. As we saw last week, we don't live in the same, the same type of age, if you wish, that Paul did, particularly found in Acts 17 when he went to Athens. The earliest missionaries of the church, the apostles, when they went out to preach, usually spoke to one of three, or if not just one, maybe all three types of people, Jews, Gentiles who had embraced some form of Judaism, and those who were simply pagans. And these three classes of people, as different as they were, had certain things in common in terms of their beliefs and in common with the gospel, which made it, I won't say easy, but there was a bridge when the, new, when the missionaries would come out with the new news, the good news, there was common ground. The first is they believed in the supernatural. 
Secondly, they were conscious of sin and divine judgment. That's why you have the whole sacrificial system happening. And thirdly, most of them believed that the world had been better than it was now. The Jews believed in the fall. The Stoics believed in the golden age. And pagans liked to tell stories about the heroes in the past. They saw the past as something that was better than the present. These three beliefs are not shared by people today. People believe in progress, which means we're getting better and better, which means we were worse and worse in the past. So that the past is not seen as a golden age or something uh, better than today. Today is better than yesterday and better than a year ago, a thousand years ago, and so on. Secondly, people do not believe in sin and judgment. Uh, David Brooks, in a recent talk, said that the only place that you tend to see the word sin today is on a dessert menu um, when they talk about particular desserts. Um, Because when you say sin, you're making a judgment. And so they don't believe in sin, they don't believe in judgment, they believe in tolerance. So if Paul were to say that God is going to judge the world, people would say that sounds very intolerant and that's not something I think I want to believe. And lastly, generally speaking, People do not believe in the transcendent. They may use the language of the supernatural, but not the transcendent. And at this point, let me do a a brief aside here, because I think for this series, but at this point, it is important for us to define two words, eminent and transcendent. The literal meaning of eminence means that God is within, inside his creation. It speaks of his relationship to his creation. It's closely related to his omnipresence that God is everywhere. He is always at present or always present within the universe, but he is distinct from the universe. Uh, from Jeremiah 23, am I only a god nearby declares the Lord and not a god far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth declares the Lord? So God is within his creation. Transcendence, on the other hand, means that God is separate. He is above. He is outside his creation. He is distinct from all he has made. He transcends it. That's why we use the word transcendent. Paul says there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And there you see transcendent. He is over all, but he is also in all. That is, he is eminent. The psalmist writes, Let them know that you whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. So, these are important words for us in our study, eminent and transcendent. Last week, we looked at five elements of the modern secular age and the social imagination and contrasted it with the way things were in the pre-modern world. First of all, we saw that the modern world is disenchanted. That is to say, the spiritual, the spirits, the ghosts, the magic, all those things have been taken away. It evacuates the ghost out of the machine, as one person puts it. It is, for many people, simply the natural way to look at things. That if you begin to imagine that there are spiritual or unseen things, then that, that's unnatural or supernatural, and people have sort of set that aside. In the modern age, we deal with the natural world. But more than it being sort of getting rid of magic, rather than the world having meaning in and of itself, in a disenchanted world, we are the ones who assign it meaning. So significance is no longer built in. 
if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a noise? Well, a pre-modern person would say, absolutely. A modern person isn't so sure because we are the people who make the decisions about what is important and what is not. So the meaning of things is found in us and not in creation itself. With disenchantment, we lose a sense of vulnerability. Because in a world filled with spirits or unseen things that might hurt you, you need to be very careful. But if you disenchant the world, those things are gone, then you lose all sense of vulnerability. Rather than being vulnerable, we are seen as buffered, we are insulated, we are isolated, we are the individuals who fill this planet. And that's why unbelief for pre-modern people was or inconceivable, and for us it's not a big deal. Um, in general, t Taylor points out, going against God is not an option in an enchanted world. And I was remind reminded of reading, I was reminded of this in reading Psalm 71 this past week. For my enemies speak against me, those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for no one will rescue him. See, even those who are wicked, as the psalmist describes, if they see someone as forsaken by God, then this person is absolutely vulnerable, can be pursued and seized, because no one is going to save him. But the buffered self will save himself or herself. We have all systems, we have a number of systems in place to protect ourselves, to protect our health, to protect our money, protect our homes, whatever it is, we feel protected because we are modern. The second mark of the modern age is that the social bond has been dissolved. In the pre-modern world, it was important that you be a part of something, that you're part of a community, you're part of a collective. Consensus was important. And so if you decided, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to believe in God anymore, in many ways, one would say that's not your decision to make because you're part of a group. You aren't just an individual saying, I think I'll do what I want. You're part of a group. Well, in the modern age, that's no longer the case. We are individuals. And so the individual can say, I think I won't believe anymore. And people are like, okay, whatever. I mean, that's, that's your choice. You get to do whatever it is that you want. In the modern age, we are individuals. We're not part of a seamless piece of cloth. We are rather a collection of individuals. The third mark of the modern age is how the good life is seen. The good life was seen traditionally as not simply here, but pointing towards something in the future, that is eternity. So how you lived here was really important because this wasn't the end of the story. There was, in fact, judgment that was to come, there was eternal life, and so you had to be careful with what you did. In the modern age, this is it. There's no expectation of eternity, so there's no need for virtue as such. Um, people deal with the here and now, and that, for them, is pretty much it. The fourth mark was time consciousness. In the pre-modern age, certain days were special, and they connected to the past, now in the modern age, time is something to be managed. Time management. 
because we have certain projects to do, we have deadlines. That's how modern people think about time. It's not, you know, it progresses, you know, day after day after day. That's how people think of time. In many ways, little or no connection to the past. And the last thing that we saw, and this was from the series on creation, that now we no longer think in terms of creation, but nature. Nature, which is eminent, it's a closed system, we have natural laws, and this is how we figure out what is going to happen. Rather than there being divine control, there is no transcendent God, there is no eminent God, there is simply creation. We are the ones who say what is important, what has significance, and what doesn't. And the result of this, in part, is that the church, the people of God, we who are supposed to be marked by trust and belief and faith, find ourselves surrounded by an unbelieving culture. And like it or not, we are deeply and profoundly affected by this culture. You may remember that the basis of trust is that the basis of belief is that God can be trusted to command only what is right and to promise only what is true. And we show this trust by obeying God. Ken Myers uh, from Mars Hill uh, Audio Journal, a ministry that we support, wrote uh, several years ago in an article. Not long ago, while flipping through the pages of a prominent evangelical magazine, I noticed an ad for a software package. The application was designed for worship leaders, or more accurately, worship stage directors or worship production managers. And the ad copy promised that the software would keep track of all sorts of details surrounding the worship experience. Musicians' uh, schedules, whereabouts of media production elements, licensing fees, and so on. The notion that the production elements of worship would be so complex as to require specialized software was a bit disturbing. More disturbing was the display in the ad which promised, this is what I want you to hear, here's one less thing you have to pray about. In other words, God need not be bothered concerning the details of worship since we have such powerful technology. How comforting, how marvelous, and how typically modern. We are tempted to live as though God does not exist or at least as if his existence did not practically matter. We've got the technology. You want a great worship service? Here's the, here's the package, the software package. And the result is we become practical atheists. We say we believe, but we act in our practice as though God does not exist. Or if he does exist, that for the most part he is irrelevant. He's irrelevant to much of life. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where we would say this is one less thing that you need to pray about? Well, it's tempting to think or to imagine that this is a result of some secular conspiracy. That somehow there was this, if you were secular Illuminati somewhere, that had this vast conspiracy that they were going to take over the world and get rid of religion. In fact, it was religious people who opened the doors to the modern age and the developing of a secular worldview. I want to be clear about something. The pre-modern age was not perfect. Far from it. And when I talk about the modern age versus the pre-modern, I'm not choosing one over the other. What I'm trying to show the differences that we find between the two. There were in the pre-modern age, as there are in the modern age, 
various tensions. That is to say, what you think of the eternal versus the temporal. Okay, I'm here now, but one day I will die, I will be with God, and there is that tension between where I am right now and where I will be in the future. And then there is also the tension between the people in the pew, if you wish, the laity, and then those who were in the pulpit or those who were at the altar, those with religious vocations. And as time went on, I think these tensions really built up. And as a result, or in response to this, various reform movements began to emerge. Within the Catholic Church, outside the Catholic Church, you have the Protestant Reformation, and then even with the Renaissance, which is primarily a humanist movement. One of the things that drove these movements was a rejection of this two-tiered system. Remember, you have the sacred vocations and you have the secular jobs. Well, you know, earlier people were like, well, that's okay because we're all going to heaven anyway and we're all working together in society as a whole because we're looking ahead to the future. But as time went on, people began to feel a real tension that these people, and a lot of them were quite corrupt, quite wealthy, and then you have the people down here who just have regular jobs. And so the reform movements, I think in all forms, tried to relieve this tension. It is in the Reformation, the Protestant movement, that there is a drive to remake society. To not see society as consisting of two parts, and the very top part being pretty thin, but that's where the money and the power is, the church, and then everybody else. There is a tension between the already, not yet. It shapes our lives. But why are some people in the sacred category and other people in the secular? Well, the Protestant Reformation, and to a certain degree even the Catholic Reformation, and certainly the Renaissance, rejected this notion Everything that everyone does is to be done to the glory of God. There aren't certain jobs that are special and other jobs that are just, well, regular jobs. And thus, I could have chosen a number of texts, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Here Paul speaks of the mundane, everyday task of eating and drinking but it is to be done to the glory of God. He told the Colossians, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what we find is that the distinction between sacred and secular begins to be eroded. It begins to dissolve. And now it isn't just these people who are supposed to be holy and these people who are supposed to spend time in prayer those types of things, this is something that is for everyone. Holiness, virtue, is not simply simply something to be found in the monastery or in the convent. It is to be found in everyday life. And this is expressed in at least two ways. First of all, ordinary life is elevated. It is sanctified. I think it was Martin Luther who said, that a man who changes his baby's diapers is doing something as profound as someone who preaches a sermon. We would even hardly say that, but the point is quite clear that yes, if you are doing what needs to be done, this is your calling, then this is something that is holy. Not simply preaching a sermon as I'm doing, but 
taking care of your children, whatever it is that you do. And secondly, ordinary life is no longer seen as you can do whatever you want, because after all, it's the priest and whatever, they do the holy things, but all of life is to be marked by this holiness. So the ordinary occupations of life are called to serve God, just like those in the church. And they are to be marked by discipline. Discipline is a word in the pre-modern age that generally is left for the sacred. It's left for the church, for the monastery. These are people who follow certain rituals, certain routines. Discipline is not something you think about for the average person. But when the Protestant Reformation comes along, it says, listen, your work is important. It is holy. And you need to be holy too. And so there's certain things that you need to renounce. You need to put these things away. And you need to live the holy life. I think this was important. I think it was something that needed to be done. There's something else that happened, and that is the element of enchantment. The pre-modern world was much more open to the supernatural, to spirits, ghosts, the unseen. But the pre-modern mind, for the most part, did not rely on factual observations or logical analysis but on subjective faculties, that is, your emotion, your intuition, faith. And there is a dark side to the pre-modern world. Along with emotion and intuition and faith come superstition, crude ideology, and gross psychological projection. What the church had put forward as spiritual or of grace came to be seen as magical. The emphasis on the, of the Reformation was a return to the authority of Scripture. It isn't just what do you feel, uh, what are your emotions, what are the superstitious, what are the things that happen to you on the way to church today, for example. No, what does Scripture say? And there is a rejection of magical things. By the way, this this goes fairly deep, but this goes all the way to communion with the Catholic view of transubstantiation, uh, where the host is seen as being the very body of Christ, that something almost magical happens, and the Reformation is like, no, that's not what communion is about at all. So, importantly, there was a stripping away a stripping away of enchantment, a stripping away of superstition, of pagan beliefs, and of fear. And again, I'm not saying, let's go back to the pre-modern world, because it had real problems. Superstitious beliefs had come into the church. Pagan practices had come into the church. And people were held or controlled by fear. So that's not the answer. We don't want to go back to the pre-modern world. But the modern, well, as the modern age begins with the Reformation, we find a stripping these things away. And that's good. Stripping away the darkness of superstition. But as a result, in a sense, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Not only is the supernatural or the superstitious thrown out, but so is the supernatural. And the idea of the sacred. Because you know what, if everything is sacred, then maybe nothing is sacred. Then suddenly the world becomes a far different place than it used to be. So the sacred is gone. 
the enchanted is gone, the distinctions between people are gone, and as a result, life changes. Social arrangements, political arrangements are no longer seen as sacred or enchanted givens. The divine right of kings, really? As they stripped away, as the reform movements, and not only the Protestant Reformation, but the Catholic Reformation as well and the Renaissance, as they strip away superstition, they take more than superstition. They take belief as well. There's a new freedom in the world because now the supernatural or the superstition aspect is gone. And the world can be reordered to the glory of God. And I want to make this clear. That oftentimes people see what happened as a result of unbelievers. And in fact, it was a result of the work of believers. Because rightly so, they wanted to get rid of magical thinking. But in the process, they got rid of too much. Charles Taylor in his book says that during this time, there was a rage for order. That is to say... They rejected the existing order and they sought to create a new order not based on magic or superstition or pagan beliefs or anything, maybe even belief itself, but a new order. Creation is no longer something scary. Creation is no longer something filled with ghosts and spirits that can harm you, the unseen. It is something that can be studied, something that can be observed. And at this point, creation, in a sense, sort of fades and it becomes nature. Let's study nature. Let's observe nature. Now, again, let's be careful. This is not something that unbelievers did, but believers did. First of all, Christians began to study creation for theological reasons. They did so for theological reasons. And secondly, This interest wasn't simply about transcendence, but eminence. They were looking at creation in a new way. It is during this time, by the way, the time of the Reformation, again, both in Protestant uh, movements and the Catholic, in which there is a revival of looking at the person of Christ as the incarnation. That Can you imagine God, the transcendent God, sent his son into the world in human flesh? That must mean that this world is important and that to be human is important. And this is where we are. And so as these movements began, they were not philosophic movements, metaphysical movements. They were devotional. They were looking at the person of Christ. Now at this point, if you bear with me, I'm going to skip several steps. Um, But what happened was, as people began, as Christians, to study creation, they no longer looked at its telos, or its essence. What what is this tree? What is its purpose? What is its function? Rather, they began to look at cause. And how do you discover cause? You do so by observing. And empirical observation began, or became, the way that people did things. In other words, if you look at something that needs to be studied, you can study it, you can observe it, you can see what changes occur. That's the way we do things today. We are the result of that project. But something else happens. In order to observe, 
and write down your observations and come to certain conclusions, you don't have to believe. You don't have to have a belief system as such. You don't have to be a Christian. Now, again, the first movers in this movement of science and empiricism are, in fact, Christians. They are believers. Even René Descartes, who is oftentimes seen as the markers, the beginning of the modern age, the cogito ergo sum, was a very devout Roman Catholic. But what he was looking for and what others began to look for was, I want to be able to talk about things and not use religious language. I don't want to talk about the unseen because we got rid of all the superstitious stuff. And as a result, it is as though somebody closed the door and locked God out. God's transcendent and so we pray to him and all that, but he's not inside the world. The world, we're here and we will study it by observing it. So nature became neutral. No aspect of God being in creation, being a part of it. And this impacted slowly but surely other areas like politics, like ethics, like social life. Things became neutral. One result is, remember that the the Reformation said that your everyday life is to be elevated because this is your calling from God. This is holy. This is sacred. And you need to be sacred. You need to be holy as well. Well, as time went on, the sanctification or being holy was replaced by being civil, by being nice. That became the new virtue. And changing ourselves began to be a struggle based on discipline. So sanctification, and listen, this impacts the church even today, begins to be seen as something I do. If I learn the steps, if I go into a seminar or somebody preaches a series of sermons on how to be a better person, then I, in fact, will know how to do that. That's neutral thinking with regard to civility, and now it comes into the church. As a result the world or the church moves away from transcendence because that's very disruptive. Um, let me just say, uh, oftentimes when there is a catastrophe or there's some, something happens, people will ask the pastor usually, why did this happen? And the bottom line is, if a pastor will be honest, he will say, I don't know. You may have some thoughts about why something happened, but we don't. And that's, that's a little disturbing. People want to know answers. And so now, Christians begin to think they have the answer as they observe things. In many ways, they're like the writer of Proverbs, that this is the way things work. Well, you know what? Proverbs is not the only book in the Old Testament. It's not the only book of wisdom. You have the book of Job. And try figuring that out. Then you have the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, that's a little... That's messy. We'd rather know why things work and how they work. And so this comes into Christian thinking. Taylor puts it this way, once we learned to distinguish transcendent from eminent, it eventually became possible to see the immediate surroundings of our lives existing on this natural plane, however much we might believe that they indicated something beyond it. In other words, this is it for us. Yes, we pray to God, and we, when we really, really get in trouble, we ask him to fix things, but normally we've got things, we know we've got a plan. 
we know how this works. And if I don't know how it works, I know who to go to ask to. I know who to Google, or I can at least Google and then try to get someone to help me that they'll figure, they've got this all figured out and why things are the way that they are. Something else happened, and that is social bonds began to break. Human beings are in society. Society is in the cosmos. The cosmos is in God. There is this sense that God is eminent. He is in the cosmos. Well, when society becomes a collection of individuals, then it's all about social contract. That comes along during this time. And when the cosmos does not involve the divine, this enchantment as a result. And so the world is now a radically different place than it had been centuries before. As a result, we don't get to unbelief. We become a place where you can believe pretty much whatever you want. What emerges to replace a belief in a transcendent God is an age of believing otherwise. You can believe whatever it is that you want. And I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said something to the effect that when people no longer believe in God, what it means is they don't believe in anything. No, no, it means they'll believe anything. And that is a very modern way of looking at things. And so now we have a sense that we are in a closed universe. It's huge, but it's closed. And we can make decisions. And we are self-sufficient. Thank you very much. In other words, we are eminent without transcendent. Now, the world, I think, in a sense, will allow us, and we, we hold on to belief in God, but we keep it very private. So in the real world, we don't talk about God. But in our hearts, when we, when we pray, when we have devotions, whatever, we believe in God, the transcendent God. But in the everyday life, we, as I said earlier, become practical atheists. The world now becomes the ultimate reality. It is what gives meaning to our lives. This is something that had not been imagined before the modern age. Briefly, before I close... This can be seen in four eclipses, and it's sort of a domino effect, that when something is eclipsed, that it is covered, that it's done away with, and then it leads to another, and then to another, and to another. The first of all is the eclipse of a good that transcends human flourishing. That is to say, before the modern age, I would say in a Christian worldview, humans and social institutions had a sense of purpose, an eternal purpose. This is what we are supposed to do. There's a belief in a final judgment, the eternal state, the new creation. That meant flourishing or prospering in this life is, in this life, that's not all that there was. There's a sense of obligation that what I do now is not, this is not the end of the story. That there has to be a sense that there is something quite beyond this. Otherwise, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's quoting from Isaiah 22, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, if there's nothing simply beyond this life, then good can only be found, the good life can only be found in this world. And what happens for the church is that the church, rather than saying, listen, what you're doing now there are consequences, and it isn't just judgment. There is the new creation. Suddenly now God, 
become something that we manage for our purposes. And as he puts it, there is a shrinking of God's purposes. And in extreme forms, we hear people saying, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to have all the things that you want. Well, that, that means the whole story of what God wants for me is just here in this life. And there's nothing beyond that. The life of the believer, sadly, in the modern age, has come to be seen as limited to flourishing here and now. There's no sense of, oh, yeah, there's, there's something after this. As Titus said uh, in one of his sermons, that for those who do not believe in God, death is the end of the story. Well, we believe in God and death is not the end of the story. For many Christians, the transcendent became less central and the eminent became what the story was all about. The second eclipse is the eclipse of grace. Since God's providence and care for us is in fact reduced to this life, an economic ordering of this world, this is something we can figure out. This is something that makes sense. Use your reason. You can see how God wants things to be done. So by reason and discipline, human beings, in fact, could rise to the challenge. We can conquer things and we can, in fact, manage our lives and have the good life here and now. And we can do it without any assistance, at least without any divine assistance. God, for some people during this time, came to be seen as either the guy who made things at the beginning, the watchmaker, and he wound it up and now things are going along, or he's seen as the judge at the end to see if we did a good job. In either case, he's at the beginning and the end, but not in the middle, and the middle is simply something that we take care of. And so the sense of God's grace now, it's gone. There's no need. We've got it figured out. Thirdly, there is the eclipse of a sense of mystery that God's providence is no longer inscrutable. It's an open book. As Taylor puts it, his providence consists simply in his plan for us, which we understand. We know what God wants for us. So mystery is no longer tolerated. Again, I think during this age, the book of Job and Ecclesiastes, the two books must have been ignored. Lastly, the fourth eclipse is the eclipse of Telos. We lose, we've lost any sense that God, in fact, has been planning to change us. He is transforming us. It isn't just in this life here and now. God is transforming us for the new creation. We've lost a sense that what God's plan is transcends its, our current configurations this is not the way things are going to stay. In the new creation, God has plans for us. And we forget what Peter wrote in his second epistle. His divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. By the way, we could just stop right there. In the modern age, we might leave out the godliness and say that God, in fact, has given us everything we need for life. The good life here and now. Uh, throughout, uh, through knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given to us his great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. 
So, what happened? I mean, why is it that all of a sudden the transcendent is gone, grace is gone, uh, mystery is gone, telos is gone? What happens? Because there emerges during this time, having stripped away all the superstition, there's a sense that we can figure this out. And Adam Smith comes along, John Locke comes along, and they in fact have systems. Capitalism emerges. This is the way you do things. This is the way that you make money. And the result is the idea of order, the idea of peace, and of being productive comes to be dominant, and this life is seen as the beginning and the end of all things. There's nothing beyond it. I said when I began the series that I didn't want this to be lectures, that I wanted to be sermons that call us to faith and obedience, to believe that God can be trusted, that in fact his commands are true and his promises, his commands are right and his promises are true. The words of our text, that whatever we do, if we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. But as I've as I prepared this and in going through this, I hope you've seen something that I've seen. And that is that oftentimes in our desire to avoid that which is wrong, we end up in another thing that is wrong. Uh, I've mentioned before, Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you could imagine heresy or error as a fire breathing dragon that wants to devour you, you need to turn around because right behind you is another dragon that oftentimes we back up so far from things that are wrong that we end up falling in a ditch, another ditch, because we haven't been paying attention. In the same way, the church rightly said we need to get rid of magical thinking, superstitious thinking, the fear, this, this dichotomy between the people who work for the church and those who don't work for the church. All of those things were right. But in the process, they forgot that there's a dragon back there. And the result is we are now, what began as a correction has now ended up, I think, in a greater error than what you find in the pre-modern church. And in the process, as much as we love God and hold him to be precious and trust him, in our lives, we live as though he does not exist. We're atheists. We're practical atheists. My purpose for this series is for us to understand this and then by the grace of God to put that aside and to no longer be practical atheists but to be practical believers. People who do what God has called us to do and to do it to the glory of God. But we need to understand that we're going against the flow. We're going against the grain. 99%, I would say, of society is going this way. And it is very easy for us to go with the flow and use Christian language to justify it. But in fact, we are not to go with the flow. And it's not because we want to be contrary. But we need to see what it is, who it is that God is, transcendent and eminent, who it is that we are made in his image, and what it is he's called us to do. And know that it is more difficult to believe today than it was 50 years ago, 
or a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. But that's okay. Because this isn't simply a matter of us figuring out how we're going to work this. We are to trust in the grace of God. That he will sustain us. He will carry us through to the new creation. But in the meantime, let's be people of faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we would be honest, there are so many things in our lives every day in which we think, or we don't think it, we live as though, this is one less thing I need to pray about. I don't need to pray about this. And in fact, we do. But in the modern age, we have lost a sense of grace and of mystery and of of purpose. And somehow we have reconfigured our belief in you to accommodate the world. Paul tells us that in everything we are to give thanks. He tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. Certainly sounds radical for our time. If we get sick, we go to the doctor. The doctor gives us a prescription, we take the medicine. The idea that maybe we should pray about this rarely, if ever, occurs to us. We get in our cars, we turn the key. We don't pray. We simply turn the key. And in so much of our lives, you are absent in our thinking. I thank you that superstition and pagan beliefs and pagan practices, magical thinking, to a large degree, was stripped away. But in the process, we've lost more than that. To recover it, we cannot do it on our own, not through a series of sermons, a seminar or whatever. It's only by your grace and by your spirit. Speak to our hearts, Father. Open our eyes to see the truth that you are there. This is your world. And we are called to live lives of faith. I thank you for bringing us together today. May each one of us have a sense, an awareness of your presence as we walk through the world in this coming week. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. You who is above everything, and yet you are also in your creation. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.